everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that is really, really going to struggle for the next three episodes. X, Y, and Z? X, Y, and Z. I think I'm, I'm good on uh, <clears throat> X, maybe. Uh, and what are you talking about? Why? We're doing Yiddish food. <laughs> yeah, of course we are. Of course we are. Actually, why I'm less worried about X, I've got no idea. Z, we'll figure out. Z, Z. This one ought to be a lot of fun. This one will be a lot of fun. I know it will be a lot of fun, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, how are you, Will? How's it going? I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm a little I'm a little light uh, in the mental capacities, maybe, shall we say? A little, little tired. Oh, Sunday. Uh, it's Sunday uh, and, and had, uh, had a little bit of a party last night with some friends and uh, may have had a little bit too much of our topic du jour last night. Ah, we'll get on well, to can, we give, can we give Astro a shout out and say congratulations? Yes, yes, friend of the podcast, groomsman of my wedding, Astro and his lovely fiance Sally just got engaged uh, recently. We had a, a nice little uh, uh, engagement party in Salsalito, which is one of the most beautiful areas of the Bay Area. It almost feels like you're in a completely different area of the world when you're up there. But uh, yeah, it was a wonderful time last night and uh, all the best to them in the future. Yes, absolutely. Congratulations, you guys. That's wonderful news. And we will be, well, you will be raising a glass of our topic du jour, maybe more, maybe after the uh, pain goes away. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is uh this is a, this is a fun topic. We'll dive into it a little bit more. And, um but we had um as we always do thanks to generous people on social media the last episode which I thought I thought and I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode and at the end of the episode and even when I posted or you posted it online uh this is going to be boring and not many people are going to find it interesting, but it wasn't boring. It was fascinating, vinegar. Mm-hmm. And yeah. people seem to to have enjoyed it. So thanks for the feedback on that. And we, I love that people send in what they've been eating and what they've discovered, even if it goes back to you know episodes right at the beginning of the podcast. And you, you've you've had a few of those. Yeah. So this one actually ties up nicely with our C episode and with the vinegar episode. Uh, Damien Hogan at Damien underscore Hogan said, this may not be one for the chili purists, but I have been making this recipe for a few years now and it uses malt vinegar. And it's, uh, I don't know what cookbook this is from, but the name of the um, the dish is Leon's Chili Con Carne. Oh, it'll be, uh, a, Le- it'll be a, a Leon cookbook then. Leon is, Leon. The, Leon is a phenomenal, wonderful chain of restaurants here. Uh, in the UK, that's fast but healthy food. It's I love that place. I have two or three of their cookbooks myself, and they do they do great work. Never heard of them. Oh, they're great. They are uh, they're everywhere. There you cannot go to a train station uh, or anywhere without seeing them now. And I absolutely love them. I think they're fantastic. Okay, so this is uh, from from Damien. This is. Uh uh the, the 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 chili recipe that they have and i think he said not for purists because they do one of the things uh, that you know what said. we talk f purists. the beans thing the beans yeah thing, whatever you know? yeah but but he says he finishes it with a well right there it says finishing with 100 mils 100 mils of, of malt vinegar and i asked him i was like does it taste like vinegar or is it just like turning everything up at the end to really sort of brighten it give like it you would any acid yeah. and he said though you don't really taste the malt vinegar it's more just to give it like a little bit of a a boost right at the end but to your point 100 mils is quite a lot of vinegar wow well i mean i trust these guys implicitly their their food is outstanding considering it's it's manufactured on mass as it were every time when i'm running for a train and i there's one in london bridge station and i want something 
you know, quick, but I know I'm not going to hate myself after eating. I just, without even thinking, go there. No, I'll, next time I'm in town, I'll have to check it out. But, um, and maybe this reference doesn't, doesn't travel to the UK, but whenever I see the word, the name Damien, all I can think is Damien, like, you know, uh, the omen. Yes. Six, six, yeah, six, I, all that fun stuff. I, I think everybody I've ever known that's had that name is, has had to do battle with that particular evil. Um, and, uh, and Joel Candia down in Perth. That, okay, so first of all, if you don't follow Joel on Instagram, you are missing out on some of the best food porn I've ever seen. The Perth food scene seems to be, uh, like, just outstanding. I don't know if the rest of Australia is like that, but from from what I can see from what from what Joel is posting, his uh, on Instagram, it's the word hashtag JoeLO. So uh, hashtag J-O-E-L-O. Follow him on Instagram because the stuff that he posts in the stories is just amazing. And he uh, he sent in this this little anecdote that uh, Shake Shack have opened at Changi Jewel, which is the new uh, terminal in Changi, the most extraordinary place with the waterfall and everything. I mean, it's just taking the world's greatest airport up to the next level. That they've opened it in Singapore, and even after two weeks, the queues are still one and a half to two hours long. <laughs> For the burgers? For Shake Shack. Oh, Jesus. I mean... I'm not, I like Shake Shack, but I'm not that committed to Shake Shack. I mean, me neither. But you know what? That's cool. Uh, that's just made another airport um, even better. So that's that's very cool, guys. Thank you. That's We did get a lot more, but because we um, have got a pretty packed episode here, we won't be able to get through them all. We did have a, a review that I wanted to, to mention from... Uh, a, a listener of Layovers who discovered the show, I think probably through Layovers, uh, Flying with Alexandra, or Fly with Alexandra, who's in Germany. She said, I started listening to Alex and Paul on Layovers. And so she listens, basically listened to every single episode of Layovers and is now going through the back catalog of Mastication Nation. And she says, it's superb. You won't get bored and feel like you wasted your time. Amazing content and very engaging style of talking from both hosts. Love it, love it, love it. So very, very kind. Thank you, Alexandra. Speaking of layovers real quick, I um, the Apple Podcast app is the biggest piece of garbage in the world. And for some reason, I was listening to a layovers episode and episode one then just popped back up into my Play Next feed and it just went into it. And I was like, you know those things you don't realize until you go back and look at them? It sounded like you guys were an underwater, tinny yeah. garage somewhere. And I'm like, oh, wow, they've really come from a really long way. I think that uh, we were recording on, like, the laptop microphones. And it was before we had actually made the investments on microphones and learned how to edit and what software <laughs> works. And Oh, they've come a long way, people. Yeah, we're closing on 100 episodes. So we'll have to go back into the archives and pull out some of those uh, less than, uh, uh, flattering moments, but there yeah, we are. Absolutely. So what, uh, what are you, what are you drinking before we get onto what we ate, uh, since we last recorded, what are you drinking to, uh, to salve your nerves, if you will? <laughs> right now I'm drinking Diet Coke, uh, just because I'm not open to drinking the topic du jour at, uh, 11:45 in the morning so uh that is a little boring but maybe later on in the recording i'll drink something a little different there you go well i i have got a very 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 special treat for my drink i'm still not drinking uh but the other day yes yesterday what day is it today sunday on friday i got a notification saying from dhl saying your package has been delivered and i was like what is this i've never i haven't ordered anything what's what's going on and when I got home, there was a large box from our friends at Glen Affric Brewery, Craig McCormick uh, and, and his brother and his team there. 
he sent me this very sweet letter saying, uh, I, I, you know, listen to the podcast, obviously, and know that you're not drinking, but I still wanted to send you something. So here is a selection of our yet-to-be-released sugar-free soft drinks. Oh, wow. Yes. That's exactly what I said. First of all, Craig, you are the man. What a, what a sweet and kind thing to do. That's really, really lovely of you. But fortunately, and rather wonderfully, they're also fucking delicious. <laughs> uh, it would be a little awkward if like, mm, uh, it, 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 it's, it's like burnt rubber. Yeah, yeah. Burnt rubber which is, a tasting no- it's, which is a tasting note for something that we're going to be talking about later. <laughs> yeah. No, they are absolutely delicious. And listen to these flavors. Uh, there are six different flavors, and he sent me two of each. Rhubarb, lemon and strawberry, elderflower, raspberry and coconut, cream soda, and fiery ginger. Now, we had a little tasting session, uh, me and my kids and my wife, yesterday. And I've tried all except the one I'm going to try right now. The elderflower was a huge hit with my with my wife. Cream, the cream soda was the best cream soda I've taken. And they're all sugar-free. Again, like that's just perfect for me. This is the fiery ginger, uh, which I just love the name of, and I love I love ginger beer. So I haven't I haven't tried this. I'm gonna give it. Yeah. A also, the, the the bottle design of everything they're doing is just fantastic. Oh, and I'll design. I'll post a picture uh, after this episode. I've got a picture of all six cans. The labels are amazing, and it smells uh, smells so good. Oh, that's good. It's, it's got a bite. <laughs> oh, that's got a bite. Oh my god, dude! You, uh, uh, you guys at Glen Affleck are are onto something here. And actually, um, from what I can see, my friend Joe Allen uh, got a package from from Glen Affleck as well, which was some of their their new beers, and they look really good too. So if you if you want to get in on this, go check out what they're doing at Glen Affleck, and you will not be disappointed. Yeah, they're doing uh, like next day or or two day delivery within the UK um, for their 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 new beers. And it's funny. I was like, hey, what about the US? And they sent back the the Joe Biden shaking his head laughing gif, and I was just like, god damn it. Yeah, it, I, I don't envy them. I think it's really hard to to do that. But you know, at the trajectory that they're on, they're going to be absolutely fine because they're just they're just knocking out of the park. They've got their tap room in in the world. So yeah, guys, keep keep doing what you're doing. If you can make a non-alcoholic beer, which you may or may not be working on, I will love you forever. But uh, yeah, did sodas are all right. I can't tell you how good this is. It's absolutely amazing and zero calories. So, <laughs> well, now uh, we've set the bar high. What's the the best thing you've eaten since we last uh, recorded? So I went to Austria with my family. And uh, my middle son, who's not an idiot, was really pissed off at the end of it that we hadn't seen any kangaroos. Um, I'd, oh, God. Yeah. Me, me and Jack, Jack and I have a lot of things in common. Like yeah. when we spent the entire time uh, when I was a kid spending the entire week in Seattle. And I was like, when are we going to see Adel? Like, <laughs> who is this Adel person that we're going to see? Classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think he was being like, he's got a really dark sense of humor, so I can't tell if he was messing with me or not. But uh, we had some some great food there. My eldest son, who's, who's I mentioned is a really adventurous eater, was down with the pork knuckle and the sauerkraut and all that. But I ate my weight in apple strudel when oh. I was in Vienna. We went, to, we went to Vienna and Innsbruck. Innsbruck is the most beautiful place I've ever been to. But everywhere I went, we went, my son and I walked because it was just me and my eldest in Vienna. 
And then we met up with the rest of Team Hunter in, in Innsbruck. But every morning we would walk to this bakery about a mile away from our hotel and I would get an apple strudel and goddamn, I don't know what it is about those things, but I was like, I'll have one for the trip and I'll just get, no, <laughs> I just, I must've, I must've eaten several hundred of them and they were so, 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 so good. Austrian food is not as, um, as heavy as I thought it would be, but it is pretty heavy and that's completely okay. Well, at elevation, you're burning it off. Don't worry. Mm. Uh, for me, it was, uh, I mentioned it to you the other day, I think, um, I'd come home and I wasn't hungry. And then about nine o'clock, I was like, crap, I haven't eaten today. And I'd had some bits left over in the, in the fridge. And so, uh, what I did is I had this really small, uh, duck breast, which I seared off, um, and then cooked and, and roasted in the oven. <laughs> yeah, <But> this, <laughs> you sent me this. Oh my God. Keep going. This is so and, good. And then this I, is and Will's, then I, this is Will's midnight snack, people. You, you, he's going to put the rest of your, your, you know, your, your nachos made with Cheez Its and Velveeta to shame. Listen to this. So, yeah, so I had this little bit of duck left over. And so I roasted that off and, and put it on one side to, to rest. But then I had all the, the fat left over in the, in the pan. So I cut up some really good bread that I had, uh, like toast sizes. And then I, fried the toast or just cooked the toast in the uh the duck fat so it got nice and crispy and had that fat on it uh and then i had some brie uh in the in the fridge and so i um um spread the brie on the duck fat toast then cut up the duck uh breast and had that and then uh on top and then a little bit of uh, chopped chives cracked pepper salt and then i did add a little bit of lemon zest just to finish it off and that was my midnight snack or my 9 30 snack i'm very excited for you to come on next episode and tell us what gout feels like <laughs> <laughs> washed, washed down with the like that like pint of port night like that was fat on fat on fat on fat but it was all good fat so i don't really care well i think um you probably would have had gout if you'd washed that meal down with a pint of our topic du jour, which I don't recommend anybody do, no matter how much you like it. And of course, uh, in case you hadn't figured it out, W is for whiskey. Uh, do you like whiskey? Whiskey is, for me, my only alcohol, that uh, the hard alcohol that I, I can drink straight. Uh, for me, it is the elixir of the gods. It is... Wow. Uh, the most important thing in our collective cultural heritage. Jimmy, cricket. As, as far as alcohol is concerned. Not wine. Uh, I may, we could have done I, wine for this episode. We could, but uh, I think as we'll get into it in a little bit, um, it is far more apt for us to be talking about uh, talking about whiskey. But it isn't a little interesting that you know, you're know you not drinking. So, uh, But backing up, I feel like you're not a big – I've never seen you drink whiskey ever in my life anyway. I do like whiskey. Um, I have quite a collection um, of, of – okay, that's just blackness. Um, but uh, I have – what happens when you drink whiskey. I have a lot of Japanese whiskey. I oh, love Japanese I'm so, whiskey. Sorry. I'm being dumb. Uh, I've never seen you drink American whiskey. Um, I don't – I don't feel like I know enough about American whiskey to, to really appreciate. I know uh, – I've been exposed to a lot of scotch, which makes it sound like, you know, <laughs> that's how I, you know, some kind of awful childhood trauma starts. But, um, yeah, no, I, I do like it. But I think most, most important question is E or no E? So, okay. 
let's get into this. It is a very important distinction, but let's just talk about the etymology of the word to begin with, uh, whiskey. Uh, it comes from the Gaelic, uh, and the Doesn't word it? is, yeah, it's, it, it comes from Gaelic, and the word is two words. It's utska betha, which um, means water of life. Oh, wow. So I was not joking when I said it's really, really important. Um, and it, whiskey itself is just a, a generic categorical term, like saying wine. Uh, and then from there, based on what you do, it becomes much uh, all these different things. But it's basically uh, grain alcohol aged. That is it. The name changes based on the grain used and the country of production. Those are the things that make scotch versus bourbon versus rye versus Japanese, so on and so forth. Uh, and it's traditionally made with corn, barley, rye, and wheat. Those are the, the big four. But there is this contentious argument about how to spell it. So how would you normally spell whiskey? Well, that's what broke my brain when I was writing. Well, I don't remember what I was writing. I would, I would, I would write it. Let me try. I would. <laughs> you just trying to spell it in your head now? I'm, yeah, I would probably have it with the E. Okay. So the E was m just a marketing differentiator. When Irish whiskey became a thing, the Irish wanted to separate themselves out from uh, Scottish whiskey that didn't have an E. And so that just became a thing that with the Irish immigrants to the U.S., that's why most American whiskey has an E, while Scottish doesn't. That being said, as bonny sons of the thistle-covered highlands that we are, we are Scottish, uh, we shouldn't have the E in what we're drinking. But, you know, again, it, it's based on what you are drinking and Scottish whiskey. Like, if you ever see a bottle of scotch with an E in it, they're either lying to you or someone doesn't know what they're talking about. But as you can understand, there's a lot of different things within whiskey. I mentioned a couple of them, your scotches, your bourbons, your rice, et cetera. Um, and it sounds like you are more into the to the Japanese style. Obviously, our Scottish heritage and family means that there's been a lot of scotch around in our lives. Um, I think I like God. I like scotch. Um, I was a member of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for a long time, which which gave me a pretty good education on uh, on less about the process actually a little bit about the process but more about how to find what you like but yeah i don't know why i gravitate towards the japanese stuff it's just i think perhaps it's what i've been exposed to the most and i drink it like once in a blue moon frankly yeah i mean it's, it's special occasion stuff especially the japanese stuff um, but that's a good thing about whiskey good whiskey is the whiskey you enjoy to drink it don't there's nothing you can be really snobby and elitist about whiskey but Thankfully, the market can self-regulate itself, and so you have to pay $5,000 a bottle for a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, and there's as good whiskeys that you can find for a couple hundred or you know, $60, $70. Mm. So it's all about what you like, and if you can't tell the difference between them, there's no point wasting that much money on them. But I think where we should back up a little bit is talk about some of the big heavy hitters in the space as far as different kinds of whiskey what makes them different uh and how they and how they you know some examples of each so obviously we talked about it scotch has to be from scotland you can have scotch style stuff that it cannot be called that from anywhere in the world um, but basically there are five kinds of scotch whiskey it's, it's a little confusing but i'll try and keep it as, as clean as possible there are two overarching types of scotch whiskey malt whiskey which is one type of grain, usually barley. And then there's grain whiskey, which means one distiller, maybe multiple different grains. And that's essentially what it is, right? It's just grain alcohol. 
It's grain alcohol that has been aged, and the Americans have far more strict rules when it comes to uh, you know what that means as p- compared to the, the Scottish. The Scottish basically just, all they care about is that it comes from Scotland, and uh, you know these rules, th- these terms that we're getting into now. But there's nothing around like having to use uh, new oak barrels, which you do in America, which we'll get onto. But the malt whiskey and grain whiskey are the top two, like what everything comes from. And so your malt whiskeys, you're looking about your, your Glen Levitts and your grain whiskeys, you're talking about your Loch Lomans. And then within there and how you sort of uh, blend them, because blended scotch is a thing and it's not a bad term. So you have blended malt, which is two single malts combined. So an example of that is ship dip Isla blended malt. Then you got a blended grain, which is two single grains combined. Uh, an example of that is famous grouse, which everybody knows. Uh, blended scotch is a single malt and a single grain combined. So they can sort of pick and choose what they want. And a, the most famous example of that is Johnny Walker. Mm. So those are like the ones that everybody knows those kinds of, of whiskeys. So there's five major ones. And then depending on how they mix it, blend it. And blending, like I want to say this again, is not a bad term. If you want to make it as perfect as possible, taking a little bit from this distillery this bit from this distillery and making your own version that's perfectly um okay and in fact that's why certain uh scotch blenders make as much money as they do because they have such a tuned uh you know flavor palette mm. but I, it's weird like i i used to drink scotch when i was younger but i don't really like it it's it's a little too um uh, PT, obviously that's a specific kind of, of, of Scottish whiskey, uh, a bit too thin for me. Um, it has some very nice floral notes, but I don't really enjoy it that much. I feel very terrible about my Scottish heritage saying that. I do enjoy Irish whiskey, which is often very similar to... Oh, Greg Barnes will be happy to hear that. That's his Exactly. Name. It's very similar to the production of, of Scotch whiskey, but it's usually uh, smoother, uh, not as peaty, depending on, on where in, in Ireland it, it's distilled. Uh, and it's a great sipper, something you would just have in a glass. And, and the most famous example of this is, is Jameson. Um, but the best one that I've been having recently, and I think Greg Barnes drank today as well, is Redbreast. Wow. Yeah, he um, he he's a definitely a fan, although I don't see him drink it very often. I think he drinks it alone in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> crying while writing his magnus opus yeah i think you have to drink irish whiskey if you're gonna be yeah. a writer they're, they're creative types exactly if you're drinking scottish whiskey you're gonna go get a, uh, you know in a fight in edinburgh somewhere <laughs> uh so yeah it, it, it's very different and i think i love that like you know especially european whiskey and scottish and irish whiskey um they have like different not stereotypes, but like, you know, Irish whiskey is the, the, the whiskey of the writers and, you know, Scottish whiskey fires up the blood. It, it's interesting, like how those stereotypes have blood through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I think, I mean, I, I haven't tried enough of each of these to, to know the difference, but uh, this is extremely helpful. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> well, now we get into the area that I know very very well and that makes me sound like an alcoholic uh is american whiskey and american whiskey is really interesting because of the laws that they passed Um, america has the most stringent stringent laws on what you can and can't call something um it's got nothing to do with what you can and can't make you can make whatever you want but based on what you make it's it's got very defined rules on uh on on what what it can be final product can be called so do you know the difference between bourbon and rye i have absolutely no idea okay 
So we talked about how most whiskeys are made from those four grains. Um, and that basically is the number one most important thing. So bourbon is made with at least 51% corn. So it could be 90% corn. It could be uh, anything down to 51%. And that will very drastically change the, the flavor compound. So that's number one. It has to be American made, not Kentucky made, which is some people get a little pissy about that. Um, and then um, aged in new oak charred barrels. That is the only thing that you have to hear by. There are these rules around what the proof can get up to. Uh, I think if it goes over a certain amount, then you can't call it bourbon. It's like overproof. But like uh, to most extents, you know, you can make a 51% uh, corn and then like a 49% uh, rye blend. And it's technically called bourbon with a high rye, um, but it's still bourbon. And then rye is exactly the same thing, but flipped. So it's 51% rye or more with um, American you made uh, aged and charred new, new oak barrels. That is the difference. And that's only that's all that the difference is. But the flavors are so different. Uh, bourbons are sweeter because of the corn, rounder flavors, sometimes smoky, obviously, because of the barrel. Um, and then rye is, is punchier, it's spicier. Um, all of these words mean the same thing, like edgier than, than bourbon. Um, but if they, if the, if they add more corn to the, the, the mash, uh, which is sort of the, the, uh, the recipe that you're using, the mash bill, um, it will be a little smoother and you round out those edges. Um, so examples of, of bourbon, I'm not going to throw out some like really expensive stuff here, more stuff that most people should be looking at spending less than $40 on. Uh, Eagle Rare is fantastic for a bourbon. Uh, Four Roses you'll see in a lot of places and Elijah Craig. These are all bourbon names that you should be able to find pretty much anywhere you go and will not break the bank. You know, you can find your Hudson Babies, your uh, Willet Pot Stills and, and so on and so forth. But that's when you're getting up into the 80, 90 hundred dollars worth of, of of bottle there and with the rye again willet is a fantastic one and, and, and pikesville are really good rise as well um it's funny i have a friend uh, at work who was giving me some suggestions on, on what next bottle i should be drinking and he was telling me to go get um uh old forester who are a good uh, brand and they have this distillers collection which is like 1910 1920 and like another one so i found the 1920 what I didn't realize when I opened and took a sip last night is that it's prohibition style. And most whiskeys yeah. are around 40%. This is 57.5% alcohol. Yikes. I almost blew my head off at 11 o'clock last night. It's so strong. Uh, and the, those are the two major uh, whiskeys in America, bourbon and rye. Like you have other ones, which is American whiskeys. And and then you got like your Jack Daniels of the world, which are, are technically Tennessee whiskeys, which I don't really like too much um and you know you'll find other ones doing other things a little bit more one-off but, but bourbon and rye are, are the big ones um that everybody everybody knows and, and everybody drinks um but you are a little you, you're not used to those ones those aren't ones that you've ever sort of sat down and had a sip of right no not really no no i just tend to have the japanese ones i think just because it's what i've i've had and what people give me and what i've what i've enjoyed but i do know somebody who does know a little bit about this stuff by happenstance because thanks to the, to the, to the world wide web. Uh, and he's, yeah, he's a, he's a whiskey guy. So I thought what better person to bring on and give us a little bit of an education than an enthusiast can, can be, can one be an enthusiast without being an alcoholic? I don't know. We'll ask him. 
But we are very lucky to have with us a rare guest. And our guests always outshine us on these episodes. So I'm looking forward to that being the case today. But Chris Ratcliffe, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure to be on. I like I like the story of how this even happened because <laughs> you listen to layovers from time to time. I do. Right? I, I do. I yeah. Think that's how we uh, we first connected. And Paul and I, maybe 20 episodes ago, were lamenting the disappearance, the fast disappearance of several of our famous fa- uh, favorite Japanese whiskeys from onboard service as well as airport duty free. I think which one was it? Hibiki. It was the Hibiki you were talking about. Yeah. Right. And we were sort of postulating as to why this was happening. And you were on Twitter, you were kind of like, gentlemen, allow me to educate you. And there was like this, this, Paul and I were sitting there wrapped in real time as Chris was kind of like, and then there was this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this happened. And I do want to get into this because it did freak me out a little bit. And it continues to freak me out, this whole Japanese whiskey, quote unquote, shortage. But tell us a little bit about about you and and your your relationship is that weird to have a relationship with <laughs> my my path to whiskey there you go yeah um it's it's a funny one i i was like will i mean i was well into my bourbons and tennessee whiskeys when i was when i kind of started drinking seriously and i would drink i would drink jack and coke all night long um and i didn't i didn't know any better i didn't look any any further and the first time I ever had Scotch whiskey, this will sound like a road to Damascus moment, and it was completely the opposite. Um, I was on an Emirates flight, and my my flight buddy went off to the galley and went, they've run out of Jack Daniels. This whiskey will probably do instead. And it was uh, Johnny Walker Black Label, Oof. which is nothing at all like bourbon. It's no. the smokier end of their range. And I kind of, not knowing any better, just went, yeah, fine, whatever, and tipped that and Coke into a cup and drank it. And it was like pond water mixed with Coke. It was Mm. utterly revolting, even at 30,000 feet or whatever it was. Um, And I I just went, no, you know what? I'll stick with Jack Daniels and bourbons and, you know, that'll do me. And one day I just started having... um, some of the Jack, uh, Jim Beam Black Label and then Maker's Mark. And I was like, wait a minute, there's something to this and it's different. And you can, you can actually taste it. It's not even just... Even through the Coke? Or even through think? the Coke. I was drinking right. that much of it. Right, right, right. Um, but it was, there was something in there and I could tell that this was more complex than that. And I went, well, what if I sort of bring the Coke down and I just sort of taste more of the whiskey? And then I went to a Burns Night supper with a few friends. And like I say, I'd never really been a, a Scotch drinker in any way, shape or form. And they had four courses and a flight of whiskey matched with the food. And it was it was wonderful. And ever since then, I was like, wait a minute. Well, this is different. And this tastes like this. And this tastes like that. And it just became this kind of rabbit hole I've fallen down through about the last 12 years now. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. Would you say that Scotch is like your your area of expertise that you have now moved over into? I've really actually started going back to bourbons in about the last um, sort of year or so because Scotch is very is very interesting. It's very diverse. One, I have a bit of a sweet tooth, so I'm American whiskeys sort of sit a lot better in that area. Yep. Two, they're generally more affordable. Because some of the Scotch whiskey, I mean, Japanese whiskey is poof, but 
the Scotch whiskies have just gone stupid. And in terms of price. In terms of price, yeah. And bourbon is it's kind of there's a kind of there's a, a seam in Britain of bourbon geeks that can't get the stuff that's on every shelf in the US and it's all kind of a bit secret squirrel and mm. but it, you know again it's interesting you can find this version and that version and the older version and this distillery you've never heard of and it's just kind of exciting again and it's it's really fun because it's no longer about just we'll get into you know peat versus non-peat or Speyside versus high uh, highlands but it's it's who are these people? What do they do? How is it different? Is it small? Is it big? Is it rare in Britain, or have they just started producing and all of this sort of stuff? And it's really kind of exciting. Having said all of that, I'm actually drinking a Ben Riach tonight. <laughs> um, so completely un- undercutting my own uh, my own thread there. <laughs> No, no, no. And look, I mean, we're obviously of Scottish descent and we were saying earlier that, um, you know, we should be all drinking scotch. But I went through a similar similar road to you where I was drinking it as a younger person, but then realized that it wasn't quite for me. I think the moment I can pinpoint exactly where I was like, mm, maybe not scotch. And I, I, I overpaid for a, a glass of something expensive and uh, it tasted like somebody had swept up the ashes from a fire. 500 year old uh you know uh, fireplace and then dumped it into my drink i'm like i don't like this no and that's what's that's what really surprised me about scotch was one of the first scotch memories i have was the day after and this is going to sound really disgusting but i'm going to tell a story anyway the day after the burns supper we had i was i walked out my house i was walking um going to work and I burped and just out of nowhere, just had one of those that sort of bubble up surprisingly. I went, Oh, I can still taste smoke. And that's, wow. that's clearly the Lefroy quarter cask that we had. And wow. yeah, it was, it had just sort of lingered all night to such an extent that I was like, Oh, this is kind of fun, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I can, can imagine that, like that burning sensation coming up, but it's not. For, it's no, not no, 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 no. It was all the soft, fluffy sweet stuff it was all good so when you when you were initially going through it and actually probably just as importantly now mm. and you were going uh you know i tried this and it tasted like that and i tried that and it tasted a little bit different even if it was through the uh the veneer of the coke <laughs> um but how did you go i wonder what that tastes like or i bet that one tastes like uh x so i didn't have a guide initially um I remember the first bottle of scotch that I bought was the, it was a bottle of Dura. I knew that I, I sort of tasted it and I thought, I don't have that marker. I don't have that point where I go, okay, I like this or I don't like that. Mm. I need to kind of do the homework and it's, you know, I need to pay for the kind of the education. So it was drinking it and going, I like this. I really like this, but what is it about it? Why do I like this? What's, 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 What's the underlying ingredient or combination or structure that I need to go and find others of this? I think it was it was just first of all, it was drinking enough of it to understand it and to go to kind of understand the frame of what Scottish whiskey is as opposed to American whiskey. So you've got that kind of smokiness and playing around with adding water and adding ginger ale and just sort of 
going, you know, playing with this, going, what is this thing? Jura superstition. That was it. And I got about two thirds of the way through the bottle and it was purely an intellectual exercise, literally to the point of sitting at my dining table, tasting it, thinking about it, trying to get a handle on it. And after that, it was starting to go into more bars and finding other whiskies and going, so, you know, what is it with this? What is it with that? Reading the back of the label, back of the box. Then I discovered Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible, Mm. which is a fantastic, once you've got that frame of reference, it's a fantastic way of going, okay, what does Jim say? Does it kind of correlate with what I think? So do I think it's a good guide? And then sort of going, okay, what else is there? Okay, I've heard about a, a Glenfiddich. Okay, well, what does it say about that? Oh, yeah, that sounds kind of honey and nuts. And okay, that sounds like it could be interesting. And just trying and trying and trying and building that kind of mental Rolodex that you can then cross-reference and go, okay, so if I like Lefroig, which I do, so what else is there? Well, literally a mile down the road is Lagavulin. A mile past that is Ardbeg. Right, <laughs> let's try those. And the other great thing, and particularly being, well, as close as we are relatively to Scotland, having the ability to actually go to a distillery on occasion and sit down with a whole range in front of you and taste them sort of side by side and go, okay, well, this is the young one. This is the peated one. This is the old one. This is the rare one that we've just pulled out of a cask. And just, again, kind of working through that thing of what works for this that makes that interesting? What is it that I prefer about this versus that? And even if you can't quite put your finger on it, finding those tasting notes and those guides to kind of go, that's it. That's the flavor I'm looking for. It's like this, right? Yeah. So it feels like one of those things where maybe like with wine and to an extent food as well, where uh, you can enjoy it uh, on a, you know, a purely personal level, but having that education without ruining the joy of it Mm. is it's going to give you so much more uh, well, joy from it, frankly. Yeah, and it's it's also having that conscious taste. So I think some people will will eat something or they'll drink something and, and just be very binary and I like it or I don't like it. Whereas whatever you're eating, and I'm, I think probably you two are the same, where you kind of taste it and you go, is that a bit of tarragon? Oh, they've done this. They've added this. Okay, well, that's kind of interesting. And some stuff you love and some stuff you kind of go, I get where they're going, but it's not really for me. But I suppose whiskey is canonical in a way because you can go, unlike food, you can go, I like this, but it was a little bit too smoky or peaty Mm. or sweet. And you can go, you can look almost on a framework and go, I'm going to go in this direction. I think that was for me. Like, And, you know, this is... This is something I don't know anything about other than, you know, I've got five or six bottles of Japanese whiskey on my, uh, on my, in my office here, which where that I like because they don't burn mm. um, the, the back of my throat. But I, I first went to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and the first thing the guy said was in Edinburgh and he said, you know, do you know much about Scotch? And I said, no, not, not a damn thing. Uh, and he said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. And he, he took, he gave me a little flight and said, try these and give me your thoughts. And it was sort of, you know, try one, 
I can't breathe. Two, no, that was good. Three, a bit too smoky for me. Four, mm, really like that. And the way that they had it was almost like a Dewey Decimal system in a library where we can go, okay, well, we're going to go three over and one down on the rack, and I think that's going to be your sweet spot. Oh, and wow. then they tell you the name of it and the and the, the reference number. It is, it's like 31.02 name, some weird name, like a dog's pedigree name. Um, <laughs> and... Then you can you know if you go in one direction you're going to get more PD. Uh, if you go you know up a rack you're going to get more uh, you know smoky. And I, I think we're you know and I'm talking of course in generalities here. What what I didn't get into was why those flavors exist or anything like that. But it was a really uh, otherwise I would have just been spitting in the wind. I would have gone and go oh I like that label or I've heard of that brand or you know mm. I'm flying on Emirates and I'm going to try the most baller stuff they have <laughs> and I won't appreciate it on any, on any level but having that education there and it took what like 20 minutes mm. of sip you know touch it down with a little bit of water uh, to take the edge off if you think that that's going to if that's going to help and how to drink it how to hold it uh was 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 invaluable to me um, and it, it helped me, I think, understand, as you said, and you touched on this, I think it's a very beautiful point that these things have been sitting in a barrel for, at the at the least, years, if not decades. And there are maybe a family or generations of people that have been putting this together. And I think that there's there's that's that's rather powerful. That's, and you don't get that in food, which is a very ephemeral experience. The there is a there is a quadrant somewhere on online that does pitch things, different whiskies, different styles of whiskey into exactly that sort of, you know, this is peatier, this is smokier, this is sweeter, um, and things like that. And I think it can be good, but I think you need that initial frame of reference and you need that starting point. And I honestly don't think there's ever been more good whiskey generally available. But once you've kind of honed in on something where you say i like this give me more of this specialist retailers are a huge boon Mm -hmm. and going out a lot of them do tastings they do dinners they do all sorts of things and they can be well a lot of fun for one but they can be great for exactly that of having somebody walk you through and go this is different or this is lighter and even within a range and I think it's really interesting to see commonality. And if you're tasting one distillery's work, you can kind of pick out, okay, well, this is their DNA. And that's kind of really interesting to see how somebody can take that and twist it and put a different finish on it or whatever it may be. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I think that that's invaluable too, uh, to, to be able to, to, to do that. Um, but I, I was, I, I don't know, Will and I were talking about this for the last half an hour and even before I was thinking about it, uh, you know, I, I did start with scotch and I was introduced to it, I think by some, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but, and Will, you touched on this earlier that there, they, this, uh, and as so many other F and B things do, they tend to generate, generate factions, uh, where people are, are passionate about one varietal for one of a better word and will dismiss all others. And I was introduced to scotch by these, by puritans <laughs> uh who you know who gave me this stuff and it was like drinking petrol you know it was really like ah, burning and i was like and it put me off scotch scotch for ages or just any type of, of of whiskey uh and then i think i tried japanese stuff and i was like wow this is really really good and someone's like dude uh, of all the 
you know, the similarities. Japanese whiskey is really similar to Scotch. Why is that? So there is there's a great history to Scottish uh, Japanese commonality with whiskey. It all started with two people. Well, it started off with one actually. It was Masatakata Takitsuru. He was a chemist by trade in Japan, and he went from Japan to California to America. Learned about American wine, went from there to Elgin, and proceeded to travel around interning effectively at different distilleries in Scotland and absorbing all this information about how they make whiskey. And he actually fell in love with and married a Scottish woman. It sounds kind of, he went from Japan and he went to this country and that country like it's it's nothing. He did this, the first time he left Japan was in the uh, was in the early 1920s. So he got on a boat and was for months kind of overseas. And the thought of going from Japan to, you know, Glasgow and Aberdeenshire to learn how learn a craft is just mind-boggling. And he took what he learned, he ordered the equipment, went back to Japan, started working with a beverage company out there. And he met uh, Shinjiro Tori, who is the Tory of Sun Tory, as it would later right. go on to, um, right. to be. For relaxing times. Take it to Tory times. <laughs> you have no idea. Um, <laughs> you, you laugh. You've stumbled on probably my introduction to Japanese whiskey. Really? Lost was in translation. Exactly that. I, the number of people, if you say Sun Tory or you say Japanese whiskey, that's their go-to. I, th- I, I think it's probably one of the best promotional tools there's been in... God knows how long. Yeah. And they um, own Jim Beam, which is weird. Well, they're are they owned or co-owned? I think Suntory. Yeah, Suntory own uh, Jim Beam. They own Orangina. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of Japanese ownership in whiskey. So Buffalo Trace Bourbon. We're getting well off topic now. Buffalo no, Trace is owned by, no uh, thing. owned by Kirin. Um, Beam own... Well, Beam Centauri own, obviously Centauri, Jim Beam, Maker's Mark, um, Lefroy, Beaumont. It's the, the consolidation is huge, but that's another story for another podcast. Um, so these two guys, Taketsuru and uh, Tori, set up Yamazaki. And they set up the Yamazaki distillery in 1923. It starts producing in 1924. And in 1929, they start shipping their first product. and it's all built on a sort of Scottish model. So where they put the distillery, the aspect, the uh, the climate, Kyoto is not quite as Scottish as, uh, as some places in Japan. <laughs> and in fact, that was actually one of the, the fallings out that the two had. So Taketsuru ended up going off and founding Nikka in 1934. Yeah, in Hokkaido. Exactly. Which he thought was more Scottish. So that's what I can see. Absolutely. They're one of the few places in Japan to, to rear sheep. They was producing whiskey for the domestic market and they just got better and better and better and better and better. And when they started going from single malt, so obviously Yamazaki is a single malt uh, distillery these days, but when they wanted to start blending, 
whether whether you believe it or not, there is a story that in Scotland people started blending because I'll take some of my whiskey and I'll get some of your whiskey and we'll make something better than the component parts. And so legend has it, if you barter and trade, you don't pay tax and that sort of goes over rather well. <laughs> Whereas because there was this feud between Tory and Takitsuru, they went, well, if I'm going to blend whiskey, I can't blend it with you, with your whiskey. So that's why Suntory started setting up multiple distilleries Nicker have multiple distilleries just so they can build individual malts of different styles and blend them. So out of that, we get Hibiki. We get, uh, obviously, Hakushu, which is the other malt distillery that Suntory own. I have a bottle of that on my bookshelf. I, I like it. It's, it's, it's kind of like drinking Maltesers. <laughs> uh, I'll have to look that up. Nice. I haven't opened it yet, but now I kind of want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind of, it's that kind of shreddies, Maltesers, multi-flavor. It's very nice. Brilliant. Oh, I'm all over that. Because I think a lot of people don't realize is that Suntory do, they don't just do high-end whiskey that we see here. You know, you go to Japan, as you know, and you will see Suntory cosmetics and cold beverages. And my God, you can't, you know, you can't move for a, a Suntory yeah. machine. Yeah, a vending machine, absolutely. Yeah, they're all over the place. So they have high-end whiskey production. They have mass market whiskey production. And it's it's just continual improvement. You know, they've really pushed and upped the quality from being something that was focused very much on the Japanese market just for domestic consumption and pushed into, you know what? We can be as good as the stuff that we saw and the stuff that we were founded on. Mm-hmm. And... They had, uh, they just got better and better and better. And it kind of been bubbling under the surface a bit. It was still kind of hard to get hold of. And they had a push into retail that didn't really go too well. I know this because I picked up a bottle of Hakushu 10 year old on clear out from Sainsbury's because they were discontinuing it. And I paid £15 for it. What? Yes. Um, and then in 2015, Jim Murray proclaimed Yamazaki Sherry Cask to be the best whiskey in the world. Wow. And it instantly sold out. And it's just gone crazy. Do you, th- I mean, obviously Japanese whiskey has been good for, for generations. Um, do you think it was just that article in 2015 that burst it open or, or what was the movement towards, you know, everyone now buying it? I think, I think that's a very, that's a very good point. I think that was the cork in the bottle. Because if you look at the awards that the whiskey had been winning, the International Spirits Council had been giving it gold medals and it had been getting good write-ups, but it just hadn't quite reached that fever pitch. Whereas then when Jim Murray proclaimed it and it suddenly got the headlines and if you look at Jim Murray, he's a guy who gets into the mainstream media and suddenly it's like, you know, this Yamazaki is the best whiskey in the world. And it just exploded and all of that pent-up demand just kind of went nuts and there was a great thing that master of malt did i'm unashamedly a big fan of them they, they've done a thing for the last couple of years where they've said they've been made it very clear and said we have got three bottles so our entire assignment is three bottles of yamazaki sherry cask and of those three bottles we will sell all three the first one will go into a lottery and 
if you win it, you can buy a bottle at retail price, which I think is 150-ish pounds. But we will write on the label in Sharpie, this whiskey is to be opened and shared with friends and basically kind of try and ruin its collective value. Right, right. Second bottle went into their service, their, what they call a drinks by the dram service. So they bottle it up into 50 mil samples and uh, raffled off the ability to buy those. And the third bottle, they said, we will, we will sell it, but we don't want somebody to buy it, flip it, make a fortune. We want it to go to something that's going to benefit the world. Mm-hmm. So they said, we're going to auction it. So rather than being the primary market, we are going to be the secondary market. And it will come to you pristine. And whatever you bid, minus the retail cost of the bottle, taxes, fees, that sort of thing, will all go to charity. I think it was WaterAid. Um, and they said, right, you know, go and bid. So started at £150 or whatever the retail was. Ended up going for over £3,000. Wow. And all of that profit, instead of going to somebody's pocket, went to charity, which was very cool. But they were so open about, you know, we know this is difficult and here's our situation. Try and sort of spread the love. This is because, you know, it was was lauded. A, it's incredibly good. B, it's been lauded. But I'm looking on on Wine Searcher and, you know, uh, Yamazaki Sherry Cast 2016, you're not going to get any change from... Three thousand pounds, pretty much. Um, and I noticed in uh, you know going up, and if you go if you're in the U.S., you're looking at five, six, seven thousand. Um, and then for a single, what is this? Six bottles of Yamazaki single malt, blah blah blah, in Hong Kong is one hundred and thirty thousand pounds. Oof. Yeah, I can well believe it. So, 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 I mean, this this is fascinating, and I think you know it's it's caused, from what I understand, um a run on other high quality uh, uh, Japanese whiskeys as well to the point where people are going around, they're buying the empty bottles on, and you'll know the, the, the exact what I'm talking about. They're buying the empty bottles on eBay and then they're going around to 7-Elevens in Japan and buying the little, the little mini bottles and filling it up so they can have it. It's just because it's gone crazy. It has, it has. And it's what's quite interesting about it is that the senior management at Suntory have actually gone on record to say there's no more we're cutting the um we're cutting the stocks and we will have more in five to seven years time wow and there's no rush to to kind of backfill it they're just like we're doing which is very japanese isn't it It these things take time and we can't rush time wow okay that's yeah i i think I like Japanese whiskey for the, for a lot of the reasons I've said. I think I like the story. I love I love the story of the chap uh, that founded Nika and Ansentori coming over to to Scotland and and learning the craft. And I love that. You know, I feel like maybe there's a follow up episode here because I don't think we've even scratched the surface. But you know, I know we're running short on time. I have two questions for you, and one will be impossible to answer, so I'll start with that one. When when you're out with a friend uh, and they're like and they hear your enthusiasm and passion for whiskey and they're like oh I want to try whiskey what do you order them what do you what do you recommend to them or how what questions do you ask to make sure that you, what you do order them is is going to work let's say you're at a Weatherspoons <laughs> <laughs> I think there there is a tick 
that any sort of anybody who's into their whiskey, and it's probably the same with beer, is you get to the bar, you sort of sit, stand there, and you just scan along the back bar, and you're like, what have they got? What do I know? What's different? Mm. And it's just a sort of mental tick of just like, hmm, interesting. Um, I think if somebody wants to get into whiskey, the two things that I will always consider, one is sherry, because we haven't, talked about sherry but it can really make something sweet and fruity and if you've kind of got a bit of a sweet tooth and you're and you're kind of that way inclined sherried whiskies are a great way to go um the other kind of the other end of the spectrum is peat because peat can be very very divisive and if you say to somebody do you want a whiskey where you stick your nose in a glass and it smells like a bonfire. Some people go, yeah, that sounds good. And other people will be like, no. That sounds gross, yeah. Um, so that's your kind of, you know, your 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 axis. Um, if I was going into a, a regular bar, the smoky end, the good stuff, Lagavulin 16 is a great just... Um, if you don't rel- like this, there's something wrong with you. Pretty much. <laughs> it's it's good. It, I mean, it's really good. It's reliable. It's widely available. And that's a great way, without going into like the super heavy peats, but it's a bit smoky. It's a bit rich. That's great. Um, Sherry End, Balveni, if they've got that, is often a good one for sort of that end of the spectrum. Um, Glenfiddich, Macallan, if you're somewhere a bit posh. Very big in there. Um, very big into their sherry casks. And it's... You know, people who who kind of love that end of it. If you can find yourself on that spectrum, that's probably a a good a place to start as any. And actually, I have three questions. That that's a that's a great answer. Um, when we're talking about age, um, and I, you know, obviously, you know, the the older something is, especially when it comes to wine and when it comes to uh, well, really anything like this, the older it is. By and large, the rarer it is because that that stock is diminished over time. But when you know, I'm just looking uh, on actually on Costco because they had the um, some of the the wine the whiskies that you mentioned. There's an uh, and I will not pronounce this correctly. Ockentoshin. Ockentoshin, yeah, yeah. Uh, 1966. It's 3,700 pounds. But from what I've read, and this is sort of a you know you're you're trying to paint with broad strokes here that there there reaches a point and it's around 18 to 21 where after that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good thing there's a sort of arc is that generally why and is the rarity the reason why the price is pushed up so much yes um i think with age there there are definitely phases of a whiskey so there's a very young burny whiskey there's that kind of middle age kind of 10 years or so where it starts to take on the wood character, but it's not too overpowering. And then once you get into sort of the 18 to 30, you're then getting more wood, you're getting more dried fruit, you're getting, uh, you know, usually a darker whiskey, a thicker whiskey. And at that point is also when whiskies can start to become over woody and they can start to actually deteriorate a bit. So I think if you buy it for the taste, some of it is fantastic. If it's been well looked after and well managed and people have kept an eye on it, it can be really good. Mm. 
there does come a point absolutely where it's it's almost the collector's value and i think for people like us if you're given a a 21 year old and a 30 year old and a 50 year old you know the differences will will be noticeable but the price will be you know astronomically different right, and, right. you know if you want to to sit in a you know gentleman's club somewhere with a balvenie 50 year old and feel like a baller then that's kind of up to you but right. uh, but for someone like like you or or some you know another enthusiast it's because yes it's 50 year old but it was also made rare. by that one dude who then this is the last and he left and he went to do this and remember he did that yeah i can completely understand that i can completely and, understand that and if you look as well you will see all sorts of things where whiskey auction prices and where whoever's announcing the next record there will be somebody who says it's a uh, 51-year-old Macallan that was created by this person and it's been, you know, maturing for all these years. And it's in a single lost uh, lost wax Lalique decanter and there's mm-hmm. three of them in the world and one of them has gone off to the, you know, this hotel in Geneva or something. And it's absolutely all about collectability right. and rarity. And because it's, it's it's gone past beverage, it's now art. Absolutely, you you will, you will go into somebody's house, and, and I've actually had this happen. Somebody has shown me a bottle of whiskey, and that's and then it's it, they put it back. That's it. You don't get to, don't don't touch it. No, let alone drink it. Which is which is crazy. And it's I think also when you look at things like you know Pappy Van Winkle twenty three prices, you know the, the the spirit actually hasn't changed. It's it's now stored in steel vats. There's just less of it. Right, right. The Port Ellen uh, special releases that Diageo release, the prices are going up every year because the market will take higher prices for yeah, yeah. limited stock. It's all economics and it's all collectibles. And there's a lot of drinkers now who are going, okay, well, what can I actually buy for like 60, 70, 100 pounds a bottle that's, right, right. that's good? Wow. Kind of crazy. Yeah, market economics at their best. Uh, so last question before we let you go. What are your thoughts, and do you have a favorite uh, whiskey cocktail? I have been really into old fashions mm. at the moment. Um, Thumbs up from Will. <laughs> I had an old fashioned on my honeymoon of all places at the um, Intercontinental Buckhead, which was black walnut bitters mm. and... Um, I think Woodford Reserve they had on the bar there. Their bourbon bar is amazing, but I think I went with Woodford Reserve. And it's oh, a good old-fashioned where you balance the sweetness and you balance the bitters and you try different bitters and you mix things up and you try different whiskies. It's really... It's just another another rabbit hole to fall down. But no, whis- whiskey cocktails are, are very underrated. I think people get very snobby about them, but... They're a great way to, if that's how you enjoy your whiskey, go for it. Nice. Well, yeah, I think it's probably, it's uh, the the misappropriation, I think, of uh, 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 of something that's a completely d- different and just as uh, respectable art form of, of, of the cocktail. It's not taking a, you know... Uh, you know, a beautiful Chardonnay from some storied vintner and turning it into a spritzer. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That, that This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for your time. I know we've kept you a lot longer than we said we would, but uh, you've been very generous with your time and your expertise and your passion. So no problem. thank you. How can people, because I know you tweet about this from time to time, don't you? Don't you? Yeah. So I tweet about it. I'm at Chris Ratcliffe on Twitter and... Yes, I, I'm. After this, I will be sure to uh, put put up more whiskey content as I uh, as I go and as I find it. Yes, and I I'm going to volunteer you on your behalf to answer the questions that I know we're going to get from this episode. And actually, I feel like we should have you back at some point to answer those questions because Lord knows I can't do it. Brilliant, Chris. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks so much, and until next time, eat well. <laughs> <laughs>